0: I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Tonight, we reach back into the Ideas archive to present a program first broadcast in 1990.
1: I think my religious background really did shape almost everything, it gave me the mythological framework that I was brought up inside of. and. Uh, as I know from experience, once you're inside a mythological framework, you can't break out of it. You, you can alter or adapt it to yourself, but it's always there.
0: Northrop Fry was raised in a devout Methodist family and ordained as a United Church minister in 1936. His career has taken him into the secular fields of literary theory and university teaching, but his work has always remained centered in a spiritual vision, whose ultimate source is the Christian Bible.
1: The Bible is, to me, the body of words through which I can see the the world as a cosmos, as an order, and where I can see human nature as something redeemable, something with a right to survive. I think if I didn't read the Bible and were confronted with all these dire prophecies about the possibility of the human race disappearing from the planet, I would be inclined to say, well, the sooner the better.
0: Tonight, in the last program of our intellectual biography of Northrop Frye, we'll explore Frye's religious vision. We'll look at the connections between this vision and Frye's preoccupation with language.
1: A lot of people, some very unlikely people, say that they feel that it's language that uses man rather than the man that uses language. And I have a great deal of attraction to that view. I, uh, it's partly because central to my whole thinking is in the beginning of the word.
0: We'll also share in Fry's imaginative reading of the Bible, a reading which recognizes that the Bible, like any literary work, is addressed to the imagination. The ideas of Northrop Fry is written and presented by David Cayley.
2: In the early 1980s, Northrop Frye published a book on the Bible and literature called The Great Code. The title came from the English poet and painter William Blake. The Old and New Testaments, Blake said, are the great code of art. Fry read Blake as a student in the early 1930s, and the encounter was formative. Blake taught Fry to see the Bible as the imaginative framework within which our entire civilization took shape, to see it as the source of the basic repertoire of images and stories out of which literature is made, to see it as the great code. This became the seminal idea in Fry's literary criticism. In book after book he insisted that literature, like the Bible, reveals the structure of the human imagination, what's within us rather than what's out there in the world. In a sense, Fry wrote in his Introduction to the Great Code, all my critical work has revolved around the Bible. <music> Fry's immersion in the Bible began in childhood. His family were Methodists, an evangelical Protestant church that had broken away from the Church of England in the 18th century and in Canada eventually merged with the Presbyterians and Congregationalists to form the United Church. Methodist teaching stressed the authority of Scripture and the importance of personal conversion. Fry's grandfather was a circuit riding preacher, and Methodism permeated the milieu in which he grew up. He thinks today that it still colors his overall approach to things.
1: I think Methodism is an approach to Christianity which uh, puts a very heavy emphasis on the quality of experience. That is one reason why I've always tended to think in terms of first, a myth which repeats itself uh, over and over again through a time, and then secondly, the experience which is the response to it nothing that happens in history is unique everything is part of turning cycles and and mythical repetitions everything in experience is unique and uh, i think it was because of the emphasis on the uniqueness of experience which i acquired so early that i realized that the other half of this was this mythological pattern the emphasis on experience yes. in Methodism. Yes. Can you contrast um, that with other approaches to Christianity that might show? Well, a Catholic its approach, for example, is very much more doctrinal, and uh, you learn a structure of doctrine. You step inside it, and that structure of doctrine performs instead of the myth. In Methodism, you listen to the stories of the Bible, and. Uh, Presbyterians used to say is the reason why Methodist ministers moved every two years is the, is the structure of doctrine in Methodism was totally exhausted long before that.
2: Fry always retained Methodism's non doctrinaire approach to religion, but he quickly rejected the fundamentalist side of his family's beliefs. It happened when he was walking to high school in Moncton one day, he told an interviewer years later, and just suddenly, he said, that whole shitty and smelly garment of fundamentalist teaching I'd had all my life dropped off into the sewers and stayed there. The punishing Father God, the post-mortem hell, the unpardonable sins, all this, he concluded, was a lot of junk. But characteristically, he also realized that it would be a waste of time to get stuck in a rebellious reaction. Instead, he decided he'd accept from religion only what made sense to him as a human being, the rest he'd simply leave alone. This meant rejecting the sentiments of Cardinal Newman's famous hymn, Lead Kindly Light, where God, says Newman, leads us,
1: and deciding to steer by his own star. My attitude, I'm afraid, was always the opposite of Newman's Lead Kindly Light, where he says, I love to choose and see my path, and calls that pride. Well, I always wanted to choose and see my path and was convinced that that was what God wanted, too. And that if I went on with this lead thou me on routine, I would run into spiritual gravitation and fall over a
2: cliff. Fry's path led him first to the University of Toronto. As a boy of 17, he enrolled at Victoria College, the U of T's Methodist College. After his graduation, he went on to study theology at neighboring Emmanuel College, victorious theological faculty. This would prepare him for the ministry, and in the summer of 34, he set off for Saskatchewan's parched Palliser Triangle as a student minister. For five months, he ministered to the congregations of Stone, Stonepile, and Carnaw, traveling
1: between them on a horse as old as he was, called Katie. I remember something that I, I found later in a Canadian critic, I think it was Elizabeth Waterston, where she spoke of the prairies as uh, a sense of immense space with no privacy. And uh, I r- found that on top of Katie, who naturally stimulated one's bladder very considerably and realizing that I couldn't get off that vast stretch of prairie because everybody was out with, uh, with uh, opera glasses, you see, watching the preacher on top of Katie. You really were observed to that extent. Well, you well, know, it was. Uh, I mean, that was that was what people did. They they all had uh, uh, had spy glasses. They they weren't um, uh, doing it with any malicious sense. It was just as their lives were uh, rather devoid of incidents, and naturally, I like to see who was going along. That was just a summer, I think. Eh? That was a summer. Yes, I thought the people were wonderful, but I uh, again I, I realized that this wasn't the thing I would be good at. Was it difficult to decide whether or not to seek ordination or not? Yes, it was difficult for me. And uh, I consulted a, um, a friend whose judgment I had great respect for, Al Vaughn. He died recently. And uh, he asked me what my difficulty was. And I said, well, various people, including Herbert Davis, a very civilized man, have... Uh, Pointed out that it might be embarrassing later on if I had a professional connection with the church. And he said, Well, isn't that your answer? I mean if it's embarrassing then Then that's it. Then you should go ahead.
2: Fry was ordained in 1936. He already knew that his vocation was teaching and writing, not the act of ministry, and through the years he's appeared more often at a lectern than in a pulpit, but he still regards himself very
1: much as a minister of the United Church. I used to describe myself as a United Church plainclothesman. That is, uh, that I was, uh, in effect, somebody who was attached to a church, but that the uh, uh, students, uh, most undergraduates, are instinctively agnostic and rather rebellious about uh, about churches and about religious institutions generally, and. Uh, I have always used a very secular attitude in order to, in effect, win the confidence of people, not because I'm going to catch them on a trap later, but precisely because I want them to understand that there isn't any trap. Fry's secular
2: attitude is evident in his writings. His perspective is the literary critics, never the theologians. Nevertheless, he's reacted hotly when people have misinterpreted his anti-doctrinaire approach. Once he was asked in public to comment on a reviewer's claim that he'd written the Great Code as an ex-Christian. I can't express my opinion of those sentences in a language that I think is appropriate to them, he responded. The United Church of Canada, of which I am an ordained clergyman, would be surprised to hear that I am an ex-Christian. Prize relationship to the Bible is the foundation of all his work as a literary critic. It was hearing the echoes of the Bible in English poetry that made him aware that literature always belongs to a mythological universe that gives it its fundamental forms and images. And the Bible has given him his personal bearings as well. The
1: Bible is, to me, the body of words through which I can see the... The world as a cosmos, as an order, and where I can see human nature as something redeemable, something with a right to survive. Otherwise you're left with the human nature and physical nature. Physical nature doesn't seem to have very much conversation. It's a a totally inarticulate world human nature is corrupt at the source because it's, uh, it's grown out of physical nature and uh, it has various ideals and hopes and wishes and concerns but uh, its attempt to realize these things are is, is often abominably cruel and psychotic and uh, I feel there must be something that transcends all this, or else. Or else? Well, or else despair. I mean, why, why keep this uh, miserable object, uh, humanity, alive on this planet when it's doing nothing but pollute it? Fry learned
2: to see the Bible as a cosmos, from William Blake. As a boy, Fry had already rejected a fundamentalist reading of the Bible, which made it a prop for authoritarianism and repression. Blake showed him another way, an imaginative reading, which saw the Bible as the manifesto of human dignity and creative freedom, not the dictation of a tyrannical God. To Blake, God and the human imagination were ultimately identical. In his later writings, he spoke of Jesus the imagination. What this imagination is, neither our senses nor our reason can tell us. They can only observe and compare. None, by traveling over known lands, can find out the unknown, Blake says. The imagination must be revealed by what he called the poetic genius. The Bible is this revelation. The alternative is the worship of nature and ourselves as natural beings, which Blake called natural religion.
1: Natural religion for him was what the bible calls idolatry it means uh, finding something numinous in nature in the physical environment and the bible says that there are no gods in nature that nature is a fellow creature of man and that while one should love nature you actually get your spiritual vision through human society and then you see nature as it is but but all the gods that people have pretended to find in nature are, in fact, devils. That is, they're projections of the wrong side of man's natural origin.
2: Blake's contemporaries sanctified nature. Blake asserted that mental things alone are real. Whether the sun appears to us as a round disk of fire or an innumerable company of the heavenly host, he says, depends on who's looking not on what's objectively there. Reality is something that we make in perceiving it, and we can't understand what we haven't made. Our capacity to do this is what Blake calls vision.
1: He meant the capacity to live with one's eyes and ears in what he called a spiritual world. That was not a world of ideas. It was not a platonic world. It was a physical world, in its organized form he says spirits are organized man he also says spirits are not cloudy vapors or anything fuzzy they are organized and minutely articulated beyond anything the physical world can produce in other words it was his world of poetry and painting vision for him was as i say the ability to 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 hear and see in that world. This was not a world that had an independent existence. Oh, no. Not a platonic world. This is the world as it really is, and not the world as our lazy minds and senses perceive it.
2: The Bible, to Blake, was the source of this visionary seeing. Why is the Bible more entertaining and instructive than any other book, he once asked, and answered, because it is addressed to the imagination. The whole Bible, he says, is filled with imaginations and visions from end to end. It is within the figures of the Bible that the imagination awakens and expands. They become the reader's chariots of fire. We build Jerusalem by recreating the divine forms of the imagination. The Bible is the model, the arts are the means. This was the view that Fry first encountered in Blake and adopted as his own. Soon after he began teaching at Victoria College in 1939, he began to offer a course on the Bible, which continues to this day. He also had the idea of doing a book on the Bible, and friends encouraged him in it almost from the beginning. But for years, he was primarily taken up with his writings on the secular scripture, as he once called literature. He finally got around to the Bible in the late 70s, and The Great Code was published in the early 80s with the subtitle, The Bible and Literature.
1: I didn't want to write a book called The Bible as literature. What I wanted to do was to deal with the entire narrative and imagery of the Bible and the impact that it has made as a totality on literature. And that was why the word and was extremely important to me.
2: So it's not a strategic disclaimer to fend off charges that you're poaching in theological territory or
1: anything. Oh, well, it was partly that as well. I uh, I wanted to make it clear that I was dealing with the Bible's relation to literature and the fact that it was written mostly in literary language and uh, that it was neither uh, an aesthetic literary approach to the Bible nor... A doctrinal one.
2: Fry does not consider the Bible as literature. He puts it in a category of its own, for which he uses the Greek term kerygma, meaning proclamation. But he does recognize that the Bible is made of the same figures as any other literary work. People are unlikely to get to the center of the Bible, Fry says, unless they are willing to pass through the shadowy world of literary imagination with all its fictions illusions, and suspended judgments. Michael Dolzani is Fry's part-time research assistant and a teacher at Baldwin Wallace College in Ohio. To him,
3: literature is not some sort of substitute for religion. He has always resisted that idea. Some people claim that, well, Fry just wants to make up some sort of new religion out of literature. But he very much resists that notion, I think. But he says, it is true that although the Bible, the language of the Bible, goes beyond literary language, to get to what goes beyond the literary, we have to go through the literary. The Bible is written largely in the languages of myth and metaphor that characterize literature. And to get to the charismatic moment beyond them, we still have to go through them in our reading of the Bible. He doesn't read the Bible as literature, but he says that a literary reading of the Bible is the beginning to get to a reading that comes out the other side to
2: something that is beyond a merely literary reading of the Bible. To understand the Bible, Fry says, we have to understand the kind of language it's written in. And so he begins the great code by distinguishing three different phases of language, which are roughly mythic, or poetic language, logical or dialectical language, and finally descriptive or scientific language. The Bible is expressed almost entirely in the primitive language of myth and metaphor. Logical language appears first with Greek philosophy, and only much later does descriptive language come on the scene.
1: In ordinary speech, we use words to represent things outside the structure of words, but as a technique of writing, that is a fairly late development because it depends on uh, technology, really. You, you can't write history until you have historiography and uh, archives and documents. And you can't do science until you have a machinery for experimentation. And uh, you, you can't write descriptively in any sort of mature or uh, or fully developed way until you've established these things. Consequently, I wouldn't put descriptive language as a continuous form of prose much uh, earlier than about the uh, 17th century. What is happening before that? What is happening before that uh, is, first of all, the Uh, logical language developed out of Plato and more particularly Aristotle, where the criterion of truth is in the integrity of the verbal structure rather than its relation to something outside. And how is mythic thinking contrasted with dialectical? Mythic thinking is is the earliest of all, is the most primitive form of thinking. Uh, <clears throat> Consequently, the, the illusion turns up in every generation that as something it will be out, outgrown. But we always find that if you try to outgrow mythical thinking, you end up by rehabilitating it. And uh, uh, mythical thinking proceeds metaphorically in a world where everything is potentially identifiable with everything else gods for example are linguistically metaphors that's how they start out Uh, you have a sea god or a sun god or a war god or something where two things are being identified within a uh, supposed personality and it's your view that that form of thinking is is ultimate is is a boundary for us i think it's where the use of words begins and i think it's where the use of words is likely to end
2: The language of the Bible is metaphoric, not philosophical or descriptive. This means that the Bible neither reasons about reality nor points at something outside of itself, like a work of history. It comes to us, like any literary fiction, as a
1: self-contained world of words. There is nothing that we get from Christianity except a body of words and they become transmuted into experiences you start out with the notion that if you have a body of words they must point to an event so that in the beginning god did something and the words are the servo mechanisms which tell us what he did but uh, the gospel of john doesn't begin that way it says the the word came first you've got a body of words and nothing else you create the event yourself God said, let there be light, and there was light. The word comes first, the event follows. Verbalizing consciousness precedes the uh, physical existence. There are words before there are things. There are in Genesis, certainly.
2: Words, for Fry are powers. And as we recreate the world in their light, They use us as much as we use them. When we use words to describe a world out there, they divide our reality. If we use them metaphorically, they can be healing powers. Michael Dolzani. Ordinarily, when we perceive as what
3: we think is ourselves, what what depth psychology would call the ego, the I, what we see, we are a little point of consciousness as an ego, and we look out on a big wide world out there, external to us. We are the subject and we are looking out on an external world of objects from which we are separate. That's how we define what we are. I am not that out there. I'm, I'm little me in here. And we are also by that very act alienated from anything but our own minds, anything but our own sense of consciousness. And this lurking sense of dualism between the subject and the object, the I and the not I, the everything else. That's been haunting Western thought for a long, long time now. What metaphor does, or could do, if we let it, would be to attempt to heal that somewhat. Between myself and another person, between myself and nature, between myself and God, even in a sense, in terms of some of the new criticism called reader response criticism, even between myself and a text, there is a gap which could be closed, which through the sense of identification that occurs through metaphor and myth in literature, those are forms of identifying ourselves with things which we normally are not in communion with. if you take that far enough you have a sense of everything being united in a whole webwork of community ultimately of identity god for blake was the single form or identity that encompassed all this webwork of identifications the human world the natural world the spiritual world uh, all those worlds united in the single figure of god especially christ In the center of the great code, almost in the exact physical center of it, is a chart of all the imagery of the Bible from the natural world, like the the pastoral images, through the urban imagery, through the spiritual imagery of angels and whatnot. And what he's saying through that is that all those images ultimately in the Bible are identified. They are all aspects of one enormous identity, metaphorically identified. That's a wild way to think, but it's not beyond the ways in which religion really does normally think sometimes.
1: My growing interest in the Bible has uh, led me to a growing interest in the way that nouns, the world of things, rather blocks movement. It's partly the uh, screw-up of language, because... uh, The scientist, for example, is trying to describe processes in space-time. And ordinary language has to twist that into events in time and things in space. And uh, they're not going on there. Uh, One of the most seminal books that I've read is Buber's I and Thou. And um, Buber says we all are born into a world of its. And if we meet other human beings, we turn them into it. Everything is a a solid block, a thing, this and that, and so forth. Consequently, when we think of God, we think of a grammatical noun. And you have to get used to the notion that there is no such thing as God, because God is not a thing. He's a process fulfilling itself, that's how he defines himself. I will be what I will be. Similarly, I'm more and more drawn to thinking in terms of a great swirling of processes and powers rather than uh, uh, a world of blocks and things. Uh, A text, for example, is is a conflict of powers. A picture is not a thing, it's a focus of forces.
2: When Fry began teaching his Bible course at the University of Toronto, his so-called mythological approach scandalized the campus fundamentalists. Myth was a word they preferred to apply to other people's religions, Like many Christians, they wanted to believe that there is a substratum of historical truth in their Bible. The quest for the historical Jesus has been perennially popular. Modern Protestant theologians have even spoken of demythologizing the Bible, as if myth were an archaic husk that could be stripped away to reveal a kernel of theological truth. In Fry's view, the Bible itself condemns such undertakings. The Bible contains history, but only as the raw material of myth, and its view of evidence would make any historian blush. This can be seen quite clearly in a traditional way of studying the Bible, called typology.
1: The Christian Bible consists of an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the relation between them is that everything from the Christian point of view is that everything that happens in the Old Testament is a type Of something that happens in the new testament and uh, so you get this tennis game view of evidence how do you know that the old testament is true because it's fulfilled in the new testament how do you know the new testament is true because it fulfills the prophecies of the old testament and uh, after the resurrection, we're told that the disciples confronted the risen Jesus and said, we find this resurrection very hard to understand. And he simply said, search the scriptures and you'll find that the Messiah has to rise from the dead. And that's the only evidence that the uh, writers of the Gospels are interested in. They are not biographers. The uh, one criterion they subject themselves to is that what happens to Jesus in the account must fit what the old testament said would happen to the messiah typology is really a view of history which says that history is going somewhere and meaning something and the meaning appears in the future yes always yes all our uh, ideologies today are um are uh Typological in the sense that they're all donkeys' carrots, that is, they pull you forward to something as to be fulfilled.
2: The Bible's typological structure yields a philosophy of history which the modern secular world interprets in terms of continual progress and improvement. Progress, in our modern sense, is an idea foreign to the Bible itself, but it is a reflection of the value the Bible places on the future. Even where the original ideas have been transformed, the Bible colors the Western tradition and produces what is distinctive in it.
1: The, the difference between the biblical religions and, say, the oriental religions is that in Buddhism you have a compassionate Buddha and in Jesus you have a compassionate Jesus, but he's also a Jesus that confronts and condemns the world. is a a more militant conception, more thrown on the will and less thrown on enlightenment. That is, the crucifixion of Jesus is something that goes on every day. It goes on in El Salvador, it goes on in Vietnam, it goes on here. Mm -hmm. And that condemnation of the world by the fact that it tries to kill God and is always trying to kill God is what seems to be distinctive of the biblical religions. Why is the
2: biblical Hebraic tradition revolutionary? Why do you call it a revolutionary
1: tradition? Well, I call it revolutionary because uh, the Old Testament comes out of a uh, a people that was never any good at the game of empire. It was always on the underside, the, uh, the, uh, the side oppressed and placed in bondage by more powerful kingdoms like Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia. So the central thing in the Old Testament is the liberation of an enslaved people, in other words, the Exodus. And uh, that goes on repeating through the return from Babylon. And uh, in the New Testament, it is, again, a struggle between Christ and the world, in which the world wins to the extent that Christ is crucified and dies and was buried. But of course the central thing is the resurrection. God can't die. What does the eye-ear dialectic in the Bible have to do with its, its
2: revolutionary cast?
1: The metaphor of the ear, of the voice of God, of God speaking, suggests an invisible God who nevertheless enters into you and becomes a part of you. And the, uh, the eye always retains a sense of the objective, the thing over there in a polytheistic religion, like the Greek one, you have to have visual symbols like statues in order to distinguish one God from another. But if you don't have the problem of distinguishing among gods, if there's only one, then it's a reduction of that god to see him as an object does the word also become a a command in a different sense it is often taken the form of command yes the word of command in ordinary society is the word of authority which is in that whole area of of ideology and rhetoric and that kind of word of command has to be Uh, absolutely a minimum. It uh, can't have any comment attached to it. Uh, Soldiers won't hang themselves on barbed wire in response to a subordinate clause. And uh, if there's any commentary necessary, it's the sergeant major's job to explain what it is, not the officer's. Mm -hmm. Now that is a metaphor, it's an analogy of the kind of command that comes from the other side of the imagination, what has been called the charismatic, the proclamation from God. And that is not so much a command as a statement of what your own potentiality is and of the direction in which you have to go to attain it. But it's a command that leaves your will free, whether you go to, whether you follow it or not.
2: For Fry, God is not an objective being who compels our obedience. God is a human identity towards which we grow, the Word of God a statement of our own potential. God only acts and is in existing beings, Blake says. Reality is not something fixed forever, it is something we make. Literature, Fry has always said, deals with the conceivable, not the real, with what can be made true rather than what is true now. The important question about the Bible is not whether we believe it, but what actually happens when we enter into its imaginative forms. Like literature, it is a vision to be tested rather than believed. And this testing is what Fry
1: calls faith.: Faith is, uh, according to the New Testament, the hypostasis of hope and the elencos, the proof or evidence of the unseen. I would translate that approximately as meaning that faith is the reality of hope and the reality of illusion.
2: The reality of illusion? Yes. You put it rather paradoxically.
1: Well, um...
2: Illusion is something that is not
1: real by definition for us. That's right. For most people, it's uh, the schoolboy's definition. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. I have no use for that kind of faith. And I don't think the New Testament does either. Faith can only be achieved through experience. Say the Wright brothers start to uh, wonder if a heavier-than-air machine can actually get off the ground. Everybody says that's impossible, that's an illusion. They get the damn thing off the ground. That's faith. It's not an objective body of propositions. Because the author of Hebrews, after he's given his definition of faith, goes on and gives examples from the Old Testament. He says, by faith these people did certain things. They weren't talking about a trinity of three persons and one substance, and anybody who doesn't believe in the identity of the substance or the difference of the persons is, etc., etc. If the Gospel says that faith can remove mountains, it's no good just saying I have faith that that mountain shall not be there the next minute. And of course, it stays there. So, obviously, you have to keep on working at your conception of faith until it becomes more precise and, and uh, heads in the direction of realization. The important thing is that it does does work. It's, it's uh, a process of Turning into reality what has been either a matter of hope or a matter of illusion.
2: The Great Code is a study of the Bible's overall narrative pattern. Fry finds this pattern to be the characteristic U-shape of comedy. The book begins well with the creation, quickly runs into complications with the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and ends in recreation with the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new tree of life in the book of Revelation. The same pattern is repeated over and over again in miniature in the individual stories of the Bible. Israel captive, Israel delivered, Jonah swallowed by the whale, then disgorged. The same images recur and build towards the unification of the entire book in the comprehensive personality of Jesus. Fry finds an epitome of the Bible's overall shape in the book of Job. The familiar story concerns a wager between God and Satan over the loyalty of Job. God delivers Job into Satan's hands his property is taken, he's afflicted with boils, and his friends claim that he must have done something wrong or this would never have happened. Finally, God reveals a vision of the creation to Job. Above is the uncorrupted world where the morning stars sing together. Below are the great beasts, behemoth and leviathan, in whose bellies we live. Job is reconciled to God. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, he says, but now mine eye seeth thee, and his property is restored and increased. It's a story which Fry says can be read in two diametrically opposed ways. Bernard Shaw, for example, saw it as a story in which God first betrays Job, then bullies him into submission with what Shaw called an ignoble and impertinent tirade. Blake, who illustrated the book in a wonderful set of engravings, saw the story as Job's deliverance from an ego-centered consciousness into an enlarged vision. Fry reads the book
1: as Blake does. Blake uh, looks at Job as a kind of spiritualized version of the story of the fall in Genesis. That is, uh, you start with uh, Job doing his moral duty and therefore not being quite on the Upper limit of what human beings can achieve. So he falls into Satan's world. Satan is young and vigorous, God is old and imbecile, and Satan takes over and dominates the world until Job goes through the vision of the morning star singing together in plate 14 and the vision of Leviathan and Behemoth in plate 15. And uh, the new creation, and consequently a renewed God, who is the, among other things, the divinity in Job himself, takes over.
2: You've called the Book of Job an epitome of the Bible. Yes. What does that mean? How
1: does it epitomize the whole Bible? Well, it, it seems to me that Job begins with, as I say, a spiritualized form of Genesis. It ends with a spiritual form of Apocalypse, a revelation. And in the middle comes this vertical contact between God and man, which the New Testament uh, has a different version of. It sees that contact as existing in Jesus, but imaginatively and mythically it's in the book of Job.
2: What's the difference between the two readings of the book you've given? by way of a conception of God.
1: Well, the reading which I disagree with, which makes God a bully, who forces Job into uh, agreeing with the justice of his ways, is the object of God, who is sitting up there in the sky and is linguistically a noun. That is, he's, uh, he's an object that never changes. And uh, all he does is to say, look what I did in the remote past I created this wonderful world. as I see it, the opening of the story with Satan in God's court depicts God as shifting the center of action to Satan who brings about all these disasters. Job then is driven to assert the dignity of human beings if I've done so and so and then it's all right but i haven't therefore there's a problem at that point god moves in on it and the new creation which he displays to job is the old creation again but it's something in which job now participates it's something that engages job as an actor as an experiencer that means that god himself has become a principle of action and experience he's transformed himself from a noun in Job's mind, into a verb in Job's spiritual body.
2: The book of Job ends with an apocalypse, a word meaning literally an uncovering, a revelation of how things really stand. Fry sees the same dynamic in literature, which he calls a human apocalypse, man's revelation to man, the arena in which we divide what we want from what we don't want. Usually, Fry rejects either-or choices. What we exclude, he says, one only ambush somewhere farther down the road. But he does accept the Bible's apocalyptic
1: either-or. The only either-or dialectic that I'm interested in is the apocalyptic one, which moves towards a separation of a world of life from a world of death. Not a separation of the good from the evil. I don't believe in that. In, in ordinary life the good evil distinctions are hopelessly tangled. Uh, Jesus has another parable on the wheat and the tares in which he says there's no use trying to root out the, the uh, weeds from the from the grain in this world and uh, when you make choices when you make decisions you're always moving towards an apocalyptic vision of something that doesn't and and throwing off the body of death that you want to be delivered from, so that the the final separation of life and death has to be in the form of of an imaginative vision, which is what literature expresses and what the critic tries to explain.
2: Literature is apocalyptic because it distinguishes what human beings actually care about from what they merely belong to by birth or by circumstances. Comedy shows us the world we want tragedy the world we don't, whichever it is, literature for fry must be rooted in what he calls primary concern.
1: man is a concerned being, I think that's uh, that's one way of defining the conscious animal, and uh, as I went on, I tended to see a distinction between the primary concerns of men as an animal, that is, food and sex and property and freedom of movement, and secondary concerns, which are religious belief, uh, political loyalties, and everything ideological. And uh, it seems to me that literature has a profound and, well, primary connection with primary concerns, and that that is what distinguishes it from ideology. And rhetoric of all kinds you can learn a great deal about the ideological or religious structure of a society from a novel like Flaubert's or uh, uh, Zola's or Tolstoy's but uh, in the work of fiction they have to be subordinated to making love and making a living and uh, getting on with your life uh, questions of survival and uh, if there's one thing clear about the late 20th century, it is that it's an age where primary concerns have got to become primary or else. I mean, food and sex and freedom of movement and property in the sense of what is proper to, a, to an individuality are the primary concerns. We must come to terms with those. The
2: Bible reflects primary concern. Jesus was a teller of tales, not an ideologue. He preached the power of the present moment, the kingdom of heaven in a mustard seed, later echoed in Blake's eternity in a grain of sand. This is what Fry thinks the Bible gives us, a real
1: present. The present doesn't exist in ordinary experience. It's always a never quite, and uh, it keeps vanishing between the past and the future. The uh, The Bible, while it doesn't raise so abstract an argument, nevertheless makes it clear that reality is a matter of a real present, a now which exists, and a real presence, a real here in space, because in space things are just as alienated as they are in time. Now is the center of time, but there's no such time as now ordinarily. Here, it's the center of space, but there's no such place as here. You're always, there's always a there, even if you're pointing to the backbone, or to your own backbones. And uh, to me, the words eternal and infinite do not mean time and space going on and on without ever stopping. They mean the reality of now and the reality of here.
2: What makes the reality of now? And the reality of here is vision, the power to see in the light of eternity, which is the world as it always and never is. The Bible is the source of this
1: vision for our culture. We forget it, Fry says, at our peril. I think that uh, forgetting the Bible is, is on a par with forgetting the rest of our cultural heritage, and I've always, of course, maintained that when you lose your memory, you become senile, and that's just as true of a society as it is of an individual.
2: Do you see this as a senile society in that sense?
1: Well, there's a lot of senility about, yes.
2: Fry's answer is characteristic. He notes the reality of growing senility, but humorously, in passing. He doesn't dwell on it, brood about it, berate others about it, His eyes remain fixed on a better possibility and on his obligation to try and realize it. He makes a statement of his faith in the conclusion to his book Creation and Recreation, published in 1980, and I'd like to end this series by reading it. If we could transcend professed belief, Fry says, meaning essentially ideology, and reach the level of a worldwide community of action and charity, we should discover a new creative power in man altogether, except that it would not be new, but the power of the genuine word and spirit, the power that has created all our works of culture and imagination, and is still ready to recreate both our society and ourselves.
0: On Ideas Tonight, The Ideas of Northrop Fry, Part 3. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Todd Ferracci and Brian Hill. Production Assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Producer, Sarah Walsh. Special thanks to Jane Whittacombe. We've prepared a printed transcript of this three-part series. It costs $15, or if you just want tonight's program, it's $5. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Fry, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W 1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.